Hello and welcome to Martian Drive-In Podcast 162. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm going to go through the genre stuff I have been binging. Um, I've been doing a lot of binging lately so I'm going to talk to you about the series particularly online that I've uh, been binging and maybe kind of give you a few recommendations on things you might want to check out if you haven't already. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way and we can get the show on the road. Martian Drive-In Podcast happens every two weeks. It's a podcast of science fiction, fantasy and horror appreciation. Sometimes I have guests in, sometimes I'll have a round table. Sometimes it's just random, particularly when there's a Netflix Marvel Cinematic Universe thing coming up. Feedback is the bread and butter of podcasting, so you can put feedback through at the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You can also email feedback to feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema for as little as a dollar a week. Uh, Just be aware when you're listening to the podcast, there may be some naughty words in it. So if there are kids around, you might want to listen to it later on. Okay, so how has everybody been? Um, It's been kind of weird this year where I am, because basically a chunk of Australia the size of Italy has burnt down. And all of us have um, been affected by that in some pretty unusual and profound ways. I'm going to talk about that a little bit during this podcast because I want to put down for history um, my spin on it. And uh, yeah, it's it's been very science fictional and not in a going to the future, having a federation and traveling to the stars kind of way. It's kind of on the other end of the spectrum where things have gone just that little bit closer to dystopia and it is profoundly disturbing in a lot of ways and it is affecting a lot of us. As I speak, we've lost over 2,000 homes and 24 people, and whole towns have been decimated by the conflagration. Um, It's been made more complicated by the government, which has been kind of missing in action. For 10 years, they've been fighting, doing anything about carbon taxing or um, dealing with global heating or anything like that. As a lot of you will know, the Prime Minister was in Hawaii on holiday. Um, during the the um, New South Wales bushfires, when things were getting really bad, he hid it from people, which is kind of not what we want. The Prime Minister's department blocked uh, journalistic inquiries about where the Prime Minister was. And a whole bunch of other um, politicians in government in various places, including New South Wales and the federal government, went on holidays as well, tweeting stuff from obscure places like Bali and London as if they were at home uh, dealing with things. So for about two weeks, state governments were doing what they could. Requests were put in for military help from the um, federal government. Finally, the government started to do something. The Prime Minister went for a photo opportunity down to one of the burnout towns, a place called Cabago in New South Wales, which I've been to. Nice town, well, it used to be, and got treated badly because he had done nothing. And rightly so, too. These people have lost their homes. They have been under resource for years as far as bushfire control is concerned. And the uh, Prime Minister turns up with one shopping bag full of supplies and a whole bunch of journalists, four cars full of security people, and absolutely nothing apart from grabbing people by the arm to shake their hand. Uh, This did not go down well and uh, continues to not go down well. Since then, there's been a lot more action. The military have been brought in and some things are starting to happen. Some towns like Malacuta in South Australia, which Sally and I have been to uh, and which somebody I used to know years ago had his house burned down there. Um, And they evacuated the towns eventually. Things are just starting to get together. The smoke has travelled across the Pacific Ocean and is affecting Buenos Aires. It's gone basically three quarters, half the way around the planet. Um, there's been nothing like it in human history. No bushfires this extensive that we have any written records of. And um, it's hit us pretty hard. It really, um, the smoke, We, you know, I've smelt the smoke. Um, we've helped people out. We've visited friends who became climate refugees. A, a friend of ours, a very fine writer called Gillian Pollock, has um, had to relocate to Melbourne at her mother's house because Canberra, the nation's capital where she lived, 
and still lives, is unbearable. She's got some lung and heart conditions and things like that, so she had to be relocated for her life. Uh, Canberra was the most polluted city in the world in at the beginning of this year, and it's normally pretty clear in Canberra. Um, it, it just keeps hitting us hard and repeatedly with all of these kind of things. Now, if you'd like to donate there, I will link to a page of donation sites. So if you feel like doing that, we've already done it. And we've also done a couple of other things to try to help out. But if you'd like to donate, please feel free to. Um, it is needed. It's not going to be wasted at all. We've got very smooth mechanisms for making sure that you don't get something like a Donald Trump charity where the money is pocketed by anybody. But as Wavy Gravy said at Woodstock, there's always a little bit of heaven in a disaster area. And one of the things that this unprecedented shitstorm, firestorm, that we've been experiencing has shown is that people bond together in times of crisis. It doesn't go all Darwinian. It doesn't go survival of the fittest. Uh, at least here, people have been banding together. Yes, there are going to be exceptions. Yes, there were 24 arsonists, not 200 as was reported, but 24 minor arsonists, you know, mentally ill people lighting fires. Only about two or three of those contributed in any significant way to the um, fires as we know them. Um, and there have been some incidents of looting, but they're always going to be assholes. But for the most part, people have just bonded together. They've done what they can to help each other out. The ABC, with whom I have a long-term relationship doing the movie stuff I do for ABC Northern Territory, have done crazy amounts of work. They had a whole bunch of journalists who were holidaying along the south coast of New South Wales and who got a camera and started reporting and updating people and contributed to keeping people alive too. They had to know where people needed to evacuate to and from, where they could get petrol, where they could get food, where they could get medical resources, and the ABC done marvellous with that. They've actually tapped out a lot of the funding they have for ABC Radio for the next year in covering this stuff and they've been doing 24 hours a day now for two weeks knowing that there are going to be about 200 job cuts in the abc and, and a big funding cuts because of our benighted federal government but um all credit to everybody that's helped out it's there's been nothing like it in my memory my memory goes back a fucking long way now to compare to this uh the only thing i can really compare it to is cyclone tracy in 1974 when darwin was almost destroyed by a cyclone on Christmas Day. Uh, that one, in 1974, we didn't have the immediacy. We didn't have the in-our-faceness that we have with this one. Um, we didn't have real-time reporting. We didn't have any of that. Information getting in and out of Darwin was sketchy. Communication lines were cut. Everything came in and out by aeroplane. But this one is has been unfolding before our very eyes. And that makes a difference it really is a, a weird thing to see places that you've been to and liked some places like Malakuta we stayed overnight at um, on our way from Sydney to Melbourne down the coast road places like Eden and um, we've stayed at as well all of these places uh, need our help and and the people who are meant to represent us and are meant to cover this stuff and are meant to really work for the betterment of the nation just simply haven't um we've got a government at the moment that believes in small government and one of their core tenets is in a very much margaret thatcher kind of way they believe that a nation is an economy but not a society and if anything the way people individually and in small groups and even at a state level uh, have reacted it proves that society is first people matter more than the numbers they matter more than an economy. They're, yeah, the the economy is going to take a great hit from all of this. But the immediate and the most important thing is looking after human beings and our environment and the bushfire and the um, ecosystems and the animals that have been damaged. We've lost something like half a billion animals in those fires, which is crazy. There have been species that are probably extinct now because of this because there were species that were stuck in a very small geographical area because that was their niche. Um, yeah, so it's... I'm not sure what the future is going to bring. I hope that we become a better nation and a wiser nation 
because of this and that our government starts realising that we've really got to treat this seriously and to do more than just accounting tricks to say that we're doing something about um, global heating and environmental problems. So I think that the nation of Australia is going to change in the next couple of years and it's going to be one of those profound changes like the world had in 2001 with September 11th, but in, I hope, a much more positive way. I think that there's an opportunity to reset things and to improve things and to accept the reality of things much more than has occurred in the past. There are a lot of um, misinformation things going on at the moment. There are bots and deliberate um, bad actors working on this one, particularly uh, as far as the Murdoch press is concerned, to minimise the truth of global heating and what's causing it. And some people are believing it. I mean, I've had a a number of conversations on Twitter and Facebook with people who think that uh, the Greens Party here in Australia has done a lot to stop us Um, managing the bush into managing undergrowth and uh, doing burn-offs and other things that uh, minimize the possibility of this kind of stuff there are a lot of people believing that thing that kind of lie because the big complicated truth doesn't sit well with them and that they'd rather have a small enemy than realize that the enemy is us the enemy is what we do the enemy is who we vote in the enemy is the way we see the world and the way we interact with it and the way it interacts with us and just to end this little um downer of an update there are so many people who've done so many heroic things that you couldn't you'd be spending weeks if you wanted to name them all there have been people doing and being incredible things during this time none of them of course are in our federal government Uh, Even the New South Wales state government under Gladys Berejiklian, who's not of a political party of which I would vote, for which I would vote, have done really well. They've um, found their best selves and their leadership is unquestioned. Uh, Our state government here in Victoria, Daniel Andrews, has done really well. We've been planning for this kind of stuff as a state for 10 years. And, you know, fire people, uh, ordinary people, people. There were a, There's a Sikh social group here in Melbourne who got in a van with a whole bunch of food and have been feeding people for a week and a half down at Bansdale now out of the back of a truck, giving them vegetarian meals and just talking to people and stuff like that. Um, the best of us is on show here and the worst of us is in charge. And that's kind of where we're at at the moment. I hope things get better, but at the moment we're living in quite science fictional times. Anyway, I'm going to take a break and play some music, and when I get back, I'm going to start talking about the um, things I've been binging. Today we are cancelling the apocalypse! I preach, my dear friends, you're about to receive on John Barleycorn nicotine and the temptations of Eve. Suicide, hot dogs, my razor broke, water dripping up the spout, but I don't care, let it all hang out. Hanging from a pine tree by my knees, sunshine through the shade, nobody knows what it's all about. It's too much, man, let it all hang out. Upside down, my TV's on the blink Made Galileo look like a boy scout Sorry about that, let it all hang out Sleep all day, drive all night Brain my numb, can't stop now For sure ain't no doubt Keep open mind, let it all hang out Big brown moon, how 
how does that mess your baby up leg Eating a Reuben sandwich with sauerkraut Don't stop now, baby, let it all hang out Let it all hang out Let it all hang out That, of course, was the hombres with Let It All Hang Out. Um, I was actually getting ready. This podcast is a little bit of a last-minute thing because I was actually getting ready to do a paleo cinema. I watched two movies for paleo cinema, and then I checked my notes, and sure enough, it was time to do a Martian driving podcast instead of a paleo cinema. But the good news is that I've got a paleo cinema lined up ready to go. All I have to do is talk into the mic about it. But um, anyway, um, the things I've been binging. The first one is um, a superhero piece from Spain. It's set in Madrid. It's a 10-part series on Netflix uh, in Spanish, in European Spanish. I should be correct about that. Called The Neighbor, also known as El Vecino or El Vecino in Spanish. And it's about a slacker guy living in kind of working-class area of um, Madrid. And he inadvertently gets superpowers from a meteorite containing an alien coming to Earth. A little bit of a Green Lantern kind of thing with Abansur, that kind of stuff. The slacker character is a guy called Javier, played by Kim Gutierrez. And he and his girlfriend Lola, played by Clara Lago, um, are having trouble with their relationship and things like that. She's a journalist working for an online um website which is kind of a little bit iffy and he's works in a bar for a potentially gay bartender who may be in love with him he, he slacks off at his work he's um kind of useless in his building and most of this is set inside the apartment building in his building there are a few other people living there there's a drug dealer who's kind of nice which is a little bit of an odd thing for a drug dealer. A lot of these characters do play against um, stereotypes. There's a drug dealer who lives in there and is kind of friendly in an odd way. Um, there are two uh, older ladies who are twins. There's an older guy who does random acts of kindness to people. Uh, and there's also a friend of Lola's called um, Julia. And a guy called uh, JR, who's moved in from the provinces into Madrid because he's studying for an exam to become a judge. Javier finds out about his superpowers. He's got to take a pill for the powers to kick in. And he's got a very groovy um, suit, which manifests out of a pendant. He um, kind of, you know, he's still doesn't know how to be a hero and the lovely thing is all through the series he does a few heroic things he saves an iconic um neon sign in madrid he saves a couple of people including jr he you know does a few minor things and becomes a local hero and a local of course internet celebrity and pop cultural phenomenon and nobody knows who he is he's got a mask which covers his whole face and so he's a bit of a man of mystery people don't know whether he's real or unreal whether he's a dork or a nice guy there's all sorts of variables about that and of course he doesn't tell lola his girlfriend with whom he breaks up temporarily that he's actually this um superhero called titan so there are lots of kind of it's a comedy of matters almost this movie this series 10 episodes they all run a little over half an hour each so they're not incredibly long but it's a comedy of manners and of society um they a lot of it takes place either in apartments or in the bar or in the street in a, a kind of um zocalo area just outside the apartment building where pretty much everybody lives uh and there are kind of really nice little bits and pieces of stuff like when he's testing his super strength javier throws um a skip at a pile of rubbish and not realizing that there's a dog there and the dog's been injured by him testing his superpowers so he takes the dog to the vets finds out it's going to be four thousand euros to get it fixed and he adopts a dog whose back legs no longer function and so he's this tiny little dog on those wheel carts for the back legs so they call him willy dog and um, through that, it's one of the ways in which Javier redeems himself because he realises if he uses his powers um, in a capricious manner, 
he's going to damage people. And so he falls in love with this little dog. He's very, very fucking charismatic. This little dog's fantastic. Um, all the other characters are, are really interesting. There's a kind of subtext of social um, commentary in there, talking about how there are too many betting shops in Madrid, um, talking about feminism. There's some really nice ways of approaching uh, gender equality, let's say, in this series, which I kind of like, and they use it uh, in a comic way. Uh, it's, it's kind of a nice series. It's not world-shatteringly wonderful, but it doesn't take itself seriously. It's got a heart and a voice, and it's in Spanish, of course, but the subtitles seem to be spot on from what I can understand. So there's a lot of kind of cultural stuff which we may not get, not being um, a European Spanish person. But I'm going to give that one a recommend because I like what it's saying. I like where it comes from and the characters and the acting are spot on. It just kind of worked. It knows exactly what kind of a piece of work it is. And it does um, do it on, on a small scale, give us a superhero narrative, which is somewhat unlike anything I've seen before. It's got a little bit of the greatest American hero because it's on that kind of scale, but it's nothing at all like it in other ways, or Captain Nice or Mr. Terrific or any one of those ones. But um, like all of these kind of small scale superhero narratives, ultimately, it is about the society in which the superhero finds themselves. And I kind of like that too. There's no villains there. There's just people who are a bit fucked up. And um, the, if there's a, a villain at all, it's corporations of various kinds. It's the business that Lola works for, the um, online news site. And it's the um, betting shops which are appearing all over the place and kind of leeching money out of the community. So there are those villains at those level, but there isn't really anything for the superhero to push against except his own shortcomings as a human being. And I kind of like that. It worked for me. And I just found out by closing the window that uh, I had the recording software on that it's based on a comic book series. So great. I mean, I want to see more kind of third-party comic book series superhero narratives around because they never really disappoint uh, if they're not marvel and dc you're going to get at least hopefully an interesting series out of a superhero narrative and this one's definitely that that's called the neighbor also uh el vecino or el vicino depending i think the the ch thing is maybe a italian thing not sure but um I can't be fucked looking it up. Next thing I binged was the BBC Dracula. Now, I was kind of interested in this one for a few reasons. Uh, it was written by Mark Gatiss and Stephen Moffat. And it was only three episodes long, but they were fairly long episodes. Uh, it stars Clay's Bang as Count Dracula. Dolly Wells as Sister Agatha Van Helsing. John Heffernan's in there as Jonathan Harker. And a bunch of other people, um, including Catherine Schell who played Meyer in Space 1999, playing a duchess in the second of the three episodes. It's, um, for a three-episode series, it's very episodic, let's just say that. Clay's Bang, interesting actor. Um, he's actually Danish, and he's an actor and a musician. Now, I'm not sure whether they dubbed his voice, but he's got a very good accent if they haven't dubbed his voice. His Dracula is really good. It's, he's, um smart he's feral he's got a sense of humor he's been preying on human beings for 500 years so he sees them as food but he likes to have a bit of fun with his food he's um kind of the ultimate in entitled masculinity in a way which of course was a deliberate choice by the creators they um kind of reinterpreted dracula for a modern era by making him the worst boyfriend ever. The first episode's kind of got an interesting structure. It's told in flashback as Sister Agatha and another nun interview Jonathan Harker, who has escaped from Dracula's castle. Now, Sister Agatha is a really nice creation in here. Dolly Wells, who plays her, is terrific. She's got a, a bit of a Dutch accent. She's very, very intelligent, She's kind of dismissive of the rituals of being a nun in a lot of ways. And she is a hard interrogator and an investigator. So we get this flashback story of Jonathan Harker in Council Dracula. 
uh, he how he um, kind of was drained by Dracula, and we see as we do in the original book, Dracula getting younger and younger as time goes on, and it's done very well, uh, not on a large scale. The castle is a whole bunch of corridors and things with a not incredibly large entryway. Uh, you get a strong sense of time in the set design, which is kind of nice. The castle itself is a maze and a labyrinth. And Dracula, we kind of get a really nice slow build of the menace in the character. So the first episode is Jonathan Harker's story, essentially which is really nicely done. It's got some twists and reveals in it. It um, sets us up with the mythology of Dracula, which is, as the third episode proves, slightly different than the classic vampire one that we know. And the third episode is where things kind of fall off the cliff a little bit. Um, A lot of people said it jumped the shark in the third episode. I can definitely see where that's a valid viewpoint. And I kind of agree with that. But anyway, the first episode is Jonathan Harker's story as he's interrogated in a nunnery in Hungary. And that kind of works. We get the backstory. We get what happened to Jonathan. And then we get the second part, which is Dracula on board as the ship heading to Whitby in England. And what happens on that ship, the Demeter as it sails and as Dracula slowly and inevitably devours the crew. Um, he sails to England with 50 boxes of his native soil in there. We meet the ship's crew, which is kind of interesting. Um, and not cliched either. There's the captain who's not at the usual kind of hard captain you get in this kind of thing. There's the ship's cook who's got a great sense of humor and, uh, also, uh, had lost a hand on the last voyage. So he's got, um, a kind of tong thing, which he uses for, cooking purposes you get a young cabin steward you get a a bunch of other people there you get a number of couples which are traveling to england on the ship um a man a doctor and his um deaf mute daughter you get um a young english nobleman and his bride and his manservant who may or may not be his manservant there's a bit of a mystery there which soon and easily gets solved and you get dracula um pretending to be a human being you also get um the sense as people start disappearing from the ship the survivors start investigating it like a murder and that they've even got a lock room mystery in there and it's kind of a a, a little like a bottle episode in a way but much much more interesting um as the people die and are um drained by dracula the kind of tension intensifies and then as the ship almost reaches shore i'm not going to do any spoilers beyond that we then have another surprise which takes us into the third episode which is dracula on uk soil and i'm not going to do too many spoilers on that except to say there were parts of it that worked for me particularly the parts with lucy westerner which were done very well and which um really ramp up the horror in some really interesting ways even though there are some revelations that slowly telegraph themselves the fact that we know what's going to happen doesn't show us the revelation so we're waiting to see what the revelation looks like we know that there's a revelation we kind of know what it is but there's a kind of tension that builds up beautifully as we don't actually see the results of that revelation, I'm being vague deliberately here, until it really hits us hard. And that kind of worked. Uh, There's the code, the bit at the end is the bit that didn't work for me. Now, as I said, I'm not going to spoil things for you. I'm not going to kind of go through that. But I think it's worth watching. I think the three episodes are worth watching given the fact that I didn't really like the ending. Uh, Sally is very fussy with vampires, and she liked the Dracula that Clay's Bang gave us and enjoyed the series, except for that last bit at the end, as I did. So, yeah, you should check out that Dracula. It is on Netflix as well, because um, it was shown in England on the BBC, but in overseas market, they obviously did a distribution deal with Netflix. 
And for me, that one worked. But I think I would have liked the ending to play out somewhat differently. And some of the choices about the changes made to the vampire mythology are a little bit trite for my tastes. Next thing I watched was The Witcher, which is a... Which, 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 based on a long-running series of fantasy novels and short story collections by an author, a Polish author called Andrzej Sapowski, which have been going since 1993. The most recent book was in 2013. Uh, the original, there was actually a movie version of it called The Hexa, which came out as a Polish fantasy film that came out in 2001. So this intellectual property has been around for more than a little time. I'm going to have to try to find a copy of the Hexa and check that out. But anyway, the Witcher TV series stars Henry Cavill as Geralt of Rivia, um, Freya Allen as Ciri, a crown princess of a kingdom called Sintra, Anya Chilotra as Yennefer of Vengerberg, who is a quarter elf sorceress who crosses paths with Geralt. There's also a travelling bar called Jessica, played by Joey Beatty, and a whole bunch of other different species. There are elves there, there are fauns, there are uh, monsters, and um, Geralt is a witcher, which means that he's a supernaturally gifted fighter of monsters and beasts. So he, he's a kind of guy for hire. He wanders around the various kingdoms of this world, basically killing monsters for money. Now, Henry Cowell is not the most gifted thespian I know of, but he's big and he looks good and he does a reasonable job of this. Um, his voice is very much like the voice of the um, Witcher that we get in the three so far computer games that have been produced around this IP. And it kind of worked for me. Uh, I think there's a problem with the timelines. There are some bits where in between episodes many years pass and one of the problems is that both Geralt and Yennefer are very long-lived beings so it kind of um, has a it's quite a disjointed feel in, in some ways but the production design is fantastic the special effects are really good the storyline works well and there is at the end of it an epic battle against some very nasty foes, which plays out at a narrow bridge crossing uh, an extremely large ravine separating one kingdom from another. Inevitably, there are going to be comparisons to um, George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones stuff, and I don't think that they're necessarily valid. I think they're very two very different kind of series. In a way, yes, they both got kind of medieval, vaguely European worlds um, with some magic happening in them and a whole bunch of uh, political intrigue and all sorts of other things like that. But they're played out in a different way. And I think that the original intellectual property, the novels and the short stories, play out a lot differently because there's a difference between an American guy writing a series based on a certain cultural background and a Polish guy writing one and I think that there's a lot more of Eastern European mythology in the Witcher series of books than there is say in um, the Game of Thrones stuff so it comes from a somewhat different cultural viewpoint and I think it's done pretty well there's uh, some there's a moral ambiguity to a lot of characters that I think really works and as time goes on, we get a lot of character. The biggest character arc really is Yennefer's, where she starts out living in very poor circumstances. And again, I'm not going to spoil it. And she changes enormously, both physically and psychologically, over the period that is shown in the first series of The Witcher. As I said, Henry Cavill's a bit one note playing the main character. But definitely Anya Chilotra playing Yennefer really does shine in this one. She's got a lot of heavy lifting to do as far as character development's concerned. And she does it quite well. Now, the series combines seriousness with comedy and horror and tragedy and all sorts of other things like that. It does really nicely playing with those different things and making the... Um, 
narrative work. Now, the as I said, there is a problem with the timeline, and the uh, series does jump around a lot. Some websites have put together a chronology of that, but for me, I just kind of let the series roll over me and went with it. I wanted to see what happened with Yennefer. I wanted to see, see what happened with Geralt, who's kind of, even in spite of that, problem I have with Henry Cavill's acting in it. I like the character. I wanted to see what happened with the princess. And some of those plot threads resolved for me and some of them didn't. And there's also a college of magic that's quite nasty in some parts. And there's a arc with a number of the different mages who came out of that college, which are kind of the the moral changes amongst them was a little disconcerting for me. Um, there's a lot of nudity in this. There's some male nudity, there's some female nudity in it. So it doesn't hide from being adult in its content and themes. There are some plot lines that are slightly unresolved in the almost literal cliffhanger of an ending. But I'm kind of okay with that. I know there's a second season and I'll watch that as well. And for me, it worked. I think it doesn't cultural investment that a series like Game of Thrones had where people hang off it um, all across the world. There's never been anything quite like how successful that series was. But The Witcher, within its own part of the fantasy multiverse, it's different enough to be engaging. I think some of the actors are, are really great in it. And I kind of like the way things like magic are used and the kind of technology of the magic and and the pluses and minuses of using it and the the way it works within that universe are pretty well laid out by the narrative and that kind of works for me. There's nothing worse than seeing... uh, It happens most often in movies. Seeing a movie where the system of the magic isn't explained enough that the audience can invest in it and that any use of the magic that is down the line kind of works on a logical basis based on that system of magic that's given to us in the, earlier in the narrative. One of the things that the makers of The Witcher were trying to do too was avoid actors who were being used in Game of Thrones. They wanted to have that differentiation there. And even though I think there are one or two actors who played roles in, in both series, I think that kind of worked in their favour and getting uh, particularly a lot of stage actors who didn't do a, haven't done a lot of movies or television before gives us experienced players who are also fairly new faces to us. And I kind of like that. I like the fact that they went to great care with the casting to find people who had the chops to do it, but whose heads weren't well known to us. So given that there are some flaws in it, it's still a recommendation. The producers have said that the narrative in the second season is going to be a lot tighter and there's going to be a lot more overlap between the major characters in it which I think is only going to work in the favour of the series. And I'll be there for that too. I believe they're starting production early this year with a planned release date for early next year. And it's just occurred to me that I haven't talked about any of the movies that I've watched in 2020. Now, there haven't been many of them because the current events have been a major distraction for me and uh, that's kind of understandable. But there are four movies I've watched, so I'll talk about those ones. Uh, four movies for me at this time of the year is kind of unusual. Anyway, just after the during the post-Christmas sales, not after the post-Christmas sales, but during the post-Christmas sales, I picked up a four set of Ray Harryhausen Sinbad movies, uh, along with, there was one other movie in with them, I forget which one it was, oh, Jason and the Argonauts. So I watched The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad starring Kerwin Matthews and Catherine Grant and Torin Thatcher. It's kind of good. It was the first of the stop-motion movies that Ray Harryhausen did, which was filmed in colour, and it benefits from that. The monsters in it are, are crisp. Uh, the skill and the art of giving character to stop-motion monsters is something that I love about Ray Harryhausen's work at just re-watching it and, and acknowledging the kind of primitiveness of the medium that in which he worked. It's kind of good to just see those little subtle bits where he has a monster turn a certain way or react in a certain way. It, it's just 
beautifully done. And uh, even though the plot's fairly simple, there's a little boy, Genie, played by Richard Hyers. There's um, a whole bunch of character actors in the background uh, and uh, a dragon and a whole bunch of other monsters in there. It just um, it has a, a naive loveliness to it and a kind of nostalgic kick as well. For those of us who grew up with these kind of movies, that nostalgia kick is very much comfort food for the eyes and the ears. Uh, then I watched National Treasure, The Book of Secrets, which is the second of the National Treasure movies starring Nicolas Cage. Yeah, it's okay. Um, it's a bit of fun. I never did take to John Voight playing his father. I think that you needed somebody a little bit um, fuller in what they do i mean john voight very much a right-wing person now but i think that you know i, I think that you, there was something kind of lacking in that we get helen mirren playing his mum which is kind of cool and you get lots of that jumping around um, unveiling mysteries and all that kind of thing it's a bit of a kind of fun action film without being anything totally wonderful then i watched a, one of the God of Gambler movies, which is kind of tangential to the God of Gambler movies starring Cho Yun-Fat. Um, this one was From Vegas to Macau, which I borrowed from my library. And, yeah, it's silly. Uh, Chinese slapstick humour is an acquired taste, and I'm not sure I've entirely acquired the taste for it. It's partly a caper movie, partly a um, conspiracy theory movie, and a whole bunch of other things, but it's definitely Chow Yun-Fat having fun and playing a character which isn't quite um, Duchenne, the God of Gamblers. And if you haven't seen God of Gamblers, you definitely should. Uh, but it is a bit of fun. Uh, there's some beautiful effects work in there. It's, it's not quite up to the standards of Hollywood. The movie's about 10 years old now. And it's used in an imaginative way. So there's that which kind of lifts it beyond the limitations of the um, computer-generated imagery we have of cards spinning through the air. Um, you get to show you, in fact, throwing steel playing cards at people in interesting ways. It's a lot of fun. In um, And there is a nice little coda at the end where the real God of Gamblers shows up for just a moment. Now, it's not a spoiler to do that because you're getting shit tons of Chow Yun-Fat anyway and he's having a lot of fun. There's um, so many lovely little bits and pieces in this one. It's just um, movie making as a fun exercise. But again, that kind of slapstick humour doesn't really land for me. A lot of it's pretty sexist um, and I don't think it adds that much to the movie itself. Um, it's I'm actually next paleo cinema podcast i'm talking about armor of god and it parallels some of the problems i had with jackie chan's armor of god but um it was it was fun to watch and fun to get more of jayon far which isn't um you know a bad thing at all and let's see what else to watch crimson peak the guillermo del toro movie starring tom hiddleston jessica chastain and Emilio wasikowska um yeah this one's kind of a gothic horror um movie it's obviously a genre that del toro likes and it's beautifully done there's the set designs are all fantastic the um mise-en-scene in general is the period um detail is really useful there's some really nasty horror effects in there there are ghosts there is a family mystery uh, mia wasikowska plays a woman who uh, inherits money from her father who may or may not have been murdered by somebody she's married to tom hiddleston's character who's an englishman comes over to america and then they travel back to his ancestral home a decaying house on a hill very remote which is on a mountain of red blood red clay which he's trying to find a way to mine and trying to find a machine that will let him mine it so it can be used to make pottery and bricks and all sorts of other things. It's a very kind of different Del Toro movie in some ways. It tries to be commercial. I don't think it's my favourite Del Toro movie by a long shot, but I kind of like the fact that somebody's willing to make a gothic horror movie set in the 1800s or early 1900s. It's a little bit vague on exactly when it's set. At least in my memory it is. 
but uh, Hiddleston's good in it. Mia Wasikowska's good in it. Jessica Chastain gets to go totally fucking crazy. And um, pretty much, except for a couple of other minor characters, including Charlie Hunnam, an actor who I've never really taken to and never much liked him in anything I've seen him in. But, um, yeah, uh, Bern Gorman turns up playing a, a detective in there. Doug Jones does uh, the mocap or some costume work playing a couple of the ghosts, which is great because just the physical acting that Doug Jones brings to anything he does is wonderful and is at top level. Um, yeah, it's not a movie that I loved, but it was kind of interesting to watch it. And because I'm so much interested in Guillermo del Toro's career and what he does, and I'm looking forward to whatever he does next, haven't really caught up on that yet. But, um, yeah, it was worth kind of digging it out of the archive. We picked it up quite cheaply on Blu-ray. Uh, it's a movie that looks fantastic, and, yeah, it's, it's worth your time, particularly if you're a fan of Guillermo del Toro's work. The only other movies I watched this year are Armour of God, the Jackie Chan movie I just mentioned, which is for the next Paleo Cinema podcast, which I'm recording on the weekend. And also the other movie I'm doing for next Paleo Cinema which is Humphrey Bogart's movie that he did between the Maltese Falcon and Casablanca, which is action in the North Atlantic, which is a surprisingly good hidden gem of a didactic World War II propaganda pick. So um, I'm going to leave it there for the podcast. It's not as long as it should have been, but as I said, I was trying to... I was preparing myself for the next Paleo Cinema podcast and then realised I had to put out a Martian drive-in because I'm alternating, of course, between the two. So I thought I'd just kind of ramble a bit about uh, the things I've been binging and just keep you updated on what's happening here as far as um, combustion's concerned. So anyway, I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to play some music after the credits, of course. Thank you for listening. Thank you to the Patreon supporters as well who have done a marvellous job supporting the podcast. I've actually spent the Patreon money this time on a couple of movies that are going to be really interesting to do for Paleo Cinema. So I'm looking forward to doing those when the movies arrive. And in the meantime, take care of yourselves. Watch good movies. Watch bad movies. Keep watching the skies. I'm going to play some surprising music after the um, credits. And now the credits will come up to honour the Patreon supporters who support this podcast and are universally wonderful people. I'll catch you guys next time and hopefully with some better news regarding the future of this clay and granite planet of ours. See you then. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast, done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian the caterer, Grant the technicolor consultant, Claire the script doctor, Gary the prop master, Morris the musical director, Jan the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine our scientific advisor, Julia our casting director, Chris our camera operator, Christopher our gaffer, Miss Jane our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our Foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H, our set photographer, Mark D, our extra, and David L, our extra, Kerry H, who is the accountant, and our newest supporter, Gary J, who is a CG effects technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. I really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast.
kid, you ain't been around for quite some little while. You got yourself a real cute dog, you're living life in style. But boy, don't get above your station if you don't want aggravation. Got a little job for you, this is what you gotta do. Don't cry, my 